0: as long as you're not the defendant, courts can be fascinating.
1: I do like being in a courtroom. They're great places to report from.
0: This is Emma Yeomans, a Times news reporter, sitting in court for little reason, to be honest, other than nosiness.
1: This courtroom is the Special Immigration Appeals Commission. In my opinion, it's a fascinating court.
0: And one which would deliver a gobsmacking scoop.
1: It deals with cases that are both immigration, asylum, citizenship related, but also have a national security component. This means it has the power to hold hearings in both open court, which is what we attend, Hmm. and closed court where at times not even the people who are subject to the proceedings can attend. It's just national security, witnesses, judges and special advocates. It's a really interesting court and they hear a wide range of quite fascinating cases.
0: And can I ask a basic question? When you say court, is it, as I imagine in my mind, is there, you know, is it wood panelled? Is there a judge sitting there upon high? Are there sort of, you know, barristers for either side?
1: SIAC, as we tend to call it, because it's a mouthful otherwise, is one of the immigration tribunals. So it's in the immigration tribunals building, which is not the most beautiful of buildings. Why? Um, It's just not very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like the high court where it's beautiful. Yeah. In this particular case, it was being held in a court that was in the basement with no no signal, and it was extremely hot stuff in there, I found. But other than that, witness boxes, judges, it's what you'd expect.
0: Judges.
1: Yes, it's a tribunal, so it sits with three three judges.
0: I see. And why were you sitting in that court looking at that case?
1: Well, at the time I walked into court one, I didn't know what the case was. All I knew was that SIAC, this very interesting court, was holding a four-day case. Some of it, being SIAC, may not even be open to me, but I thought I would go along for at least the first half an hour, see if I could find out anything, maybe go a bit early and talk to the lawyers and just find out what the case was. Mm. I didn't know if anyone else would be covering it or if it would be just us there, and I really didn't know what it was. I had attempted to find out for about a week. I'd been asking the Home Office what the case was, and I didn't get any answer. So I turned up to find out.
0: So you arrive at this case, you've you've given it half an hour to be interesting. <laughs> what happens?
1: Well, I stayed a lot longer than half an hour. I wasn't able to talk to anyone before, so I sat at the back and I saw everyone take their seats and we went straight in. Because it was a case with a long paper-based document history, they did not spend a lot of time on case background, it went straight to it. And within the first couple of sentences spoken by, in this case, the appellant's barrister, the words GRU agent were mentioned.
0: The GRU being a unit of the Russian intelligence services, so clearly this was no ordinary immigration case.
1: Immediately this seemed like it had the potential to be good. Hmm. And I started scribbling in shorthand and I don't think I really stopped until the court rose at 5pm.
0: Which is where our story begins. You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, is an Afghan refugee who worked for the government actually a Russian spy? Before we go any further, though, we should say that this is a tribunal that deals with national security, the intelligence services, somebody who is alleged to be an agent for the Russians. So there is plenty we cannot say. Just explain what your limitations are.
1: That's correct. I mentioned earlier that SIAC holds both open and closed hearings. I attended the open, but there will be evidence no journalist will ever get sight of, let alone the public. We won't go anywhere near it. And on top of that, this case is subject to a strict anonymity order. We cannot say or do anything that could cause the appellant, in this case known as C2, to be Mm. identified to anyone.
0: And how does that limit you? You can't name them, but what else?
1: We can't name them, but we also can't give biographical details about their life that someone might recognise. We couldn't say they worked in a job that their colleagues might remember them from, Mm. or that they worked in a particular office, we couldn't say the name of their wife or their family or specifics on where they live. Sometimes it goes so far as we can't even name people connected to them because that person would then remember, oh, I had, I'm meeting with this person on this date. These are rules we encounter from time to time as journalists. These aren't unfamiliar to us, yes. but they do have a bearing on this case.
0: Intriguing. Well, let's go through what we can talk about then. Who is the appellant in this case?
1: We can introduce him as C2. Mm. That is how the court know him and that was how he was referred to throughout the hearing. C2 is an Afghan refugee who is accused of spying for Russia's military intelligence. He says he worked for GCHQ and MI6. He definitely worked for the Foreign Office, the Home Office, translated for the police. He worked in a variety of public and private roles in Afghanistan as well.
0: And met some big names doing so.
1: He did. It was presented before the court that there were photos of him with at least one prime minister, that he had met the king, Prince William, both prime ministers David Cameron and Gordon Brown, and of course, Afghan politicians, Hamid Karzai.
0: Yes. And the accusation leveled against him, at least at some point, was that he was a Russian agent. What does he say to that?
1: He denies it. He says he was never a Russian agent. There are two specific Russian military attaches in Afghanistan who he was friendly with, and he says he never suspected that they could have been officers of the GRU. He maintains that all of his contact with Russia was innocent Mm. and that he has no relation to Russian intelligence.
0: Okay, let's pull back then from those two Russian officials and meetings with you know all these politicians and the rest to the beginning of his story. He is Afghan and he grew up there.
1: That's correct. He grew up in Afghanistan while it was a socialist um, country. He left in 1994, so about the time of, of an Afghan civil war in the 1990s, and he was smuggled into Russia. This we know now, but that's not what he said when he first came to the UK. But what happened, which he he acknowledges and he says, is he was smuggled to Russia, he married a Russian national, studied the language, settled there for about six years.
0: So if he's gone from Afghanistan, smuggled into Russia, how does he end up in the UK?
1: So around about 2000, again with the help of a people smuggler, he came to the UK. This people smuggler obtained for him a fake Russian passport and booked him a holiday package to the Caribbean because the Caribbean did not need a visa for him. This holiday package involved a transiting flight through Heathrow. So he got in to Heathrow, he did not board the next flight, and instead he handed himself in to immigration officials.
0: And he handed himself to these officials. What what did he say to them? What was his basis for claiming asylum?
1: He said he'd come from Afghanistan. He said he'd travel via Pakistan, multiple flights. He acknowledged that at some point he had spent a bit of time, about six months in Russia, on a visa learning Russian, but he said he was Afghan, living in Afghanistan, and under threat in Afghanistan. So he claimed asylum in Britain on that basis.
0: Yes. And that's successful?
1: That was successful. He was granted exceptional leave to remain and he began work. He started by doing freelance interpreting and translating jobs for for lawyers, for courts, for the police a little bit, Mm. and worked his way up to doing more and more interesting jobs.
0: But when he was making his asylum claim, just being from Afghanistan wouldn't necessarily be enough on its own to grant you asylum, surely?
1: No, he made more specific claims than that about his family and what they did in Afghanistan and that he and his family were under threat from the Mujahideen. That was the basis for the threat he said he faced back home.
0: I see. And at this point, he is in the UK because he has been granted leave to remain as part of his asylum claim. At what point does he then manage to turn that into British citizenship?
1: So in the late 2000s, he applies to be naturalised as a British citizen and that application is granted. He he becomes a citizen. He claimed in court, and this is his story in court, that he made that application upon prompting by the MOD to allow him to apply for a certain job.
0: I see. So it's the kind of thing you can then apply for? It
1: is. It is perfectly normal.
0: He's now living and working in the UK. You said he's working as an interpreter. What kind of organisations does he work for?
1: He starts off doing jobs for for relatively small public bodies, local courts, local police. But he recognises that that is the best thing for him to be doing. Hmm. And he starts applying for more and more interesting jobs, effectively. And then he gets hired by GCHQ, or so he says.
0: Who are the Signals Intelligence agencies, sort of branch of of British intelligence? That seems like working for them, working for the Home Office would be quite a hard job to get.
1: It does. It does. The Home Office is acknowledged. The government's evidence to court acknowledges the Home Office work. And then he goes on to GCHQ. He says, and he presented before the court, a contract offer from GCHQ, as well as some some forms. But the government have neither confirmed nor denied that he ever worked for GCHQ. They do deny that he was given um, an advanced level of security clearance there. But he says he was.
0: And they're not confirming or denying that's a sort of standard response when you ask about if people worked for British intelligence, isn't it?
1: It's certainly a sensible thing for the government to say in context.
0: Yes. And getting these more interesting jobs, as as you frame it, you know, we think GCHQ and and certainly the Home Office, do they not have to do some kind of vetting?
1: Yes, this is a contended point. He says he had a, a variety of different clearances for different agencies, including the highest form of security clearance, developed vetting, The government denies that he ever received developed vetting. However, he did present a developed vetting application form allegedly before the court, but we we don't know.
0: Coming up, how did C2, as he's known, come into contact with the now king, his heir and two UK prime ministers? That's in a moment. This weekend, Time subscribers can catch the latest episode of Inside the Newsroom. It's our new behind-the-scenes series on Apple Podcasts, and it is just for subscribers, and you'll find it on the Stories of Our Times feed. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts to find out more. Upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Emma, you've been telling us about this man who you've been seeing in court known as C2. He claims to have worked for British intelligence. And in turn, he says that they've accused him of being a Russian spy, which he denies. He even, you know, at points in his career, met the now king and two prime ministers. Explain how that came about.
1: So after GCHQ, he says that he went on to do contracting jobs with MI6 and the MOD initially, and even NATO. Again, that is neither confirmed nor denied by the government. Hmm. And then he gets this job at the Foreign Office, which is accepted. Because of the identification issues, we have to be careful about how we describe this job. But what we can say is that this job involved him moving to Afghanistan to work for the foreign office in Afghanistan. So he left the UK again at this point, but he remained in government employment.
0: And how did he find that?
1: Well, his barrister says he was loyal to the UK the whole time. And as evidence for this, they point out that he claims he was subject to a recruitment attempt by the ISI, the Pakistani intelligence. He described this man as fishing for information and trying to find out what weapons were being used in Afghanistan. Hmm. Um, and he says he reported this uh, this incident after it happened. So that was, that was one of the few details we do know and can report about his time at the Foreign Office.
0: So as we move through the 2000s then, he doesn't stay in this job. What does he do next?
1: So he spends a few years with the Foreign Office and then he leaves to work in Afghanistan in a variety of roles in both the public and private sector. And these are roles that gave him quite close dealings with both Russian officials and also NATO and coalition forces officials. So this is when it is alleged that he came into contact with two Russian military attaches who are said to be GRU officers.
0: And when you say came into contact with, what's it alleged that he did with them?
1: He admitted quite a lot of this in court. He said they were friends, that he never suspected that they were GRU officers. He admitted that he had passed cash bribes to them in one role and that he had passed them contracts which relate in some way to NATO. He even sent them a copy of his ID card. However, he did say all of this information was not confidential.
0: Did he explain why he did any of that? I mean, even like the cash bribes, that seems like such a curious thing to do with a a PAL.
1: There were explanations given.
0: But if you can't tell us, if we that's go, fine.
1: <laughs> if we give those explanations, we explain what the context was and then we identify him, unfortunately.
0: Understood. But his dealings with these men, it seems, wasn't just business.
1: No, he said in court that at one point he had sent them and received from them naked pictures of women as well.
0: Again, dare ask why? We don't know. We don't know, okay. But he at no point thought that they were Russian intelligence, he says. He just thought they were Russian government officials.
1: That's correct. Their job titles were military attaché. We have of course heard in other contexts that being used as cover for a GRU officer or for various intelligence officers, mm. but it's not the only thing that a military attaché could do. Yes. They are they are a role.
0: After this he does return to the UK. How
1: He is still living and working in Afghanistan when he first comes under suspicion from MI5 for his links to Russia. This is around about 2019. At that point, he is living in Afghanistan, but he makes a visit back to London for family reasons. And at that point, he is interviewed by MI5. And what do they put to him? They put to him that he is an asset of the GRU, And they put to him that he has been trained by the GRU since the age of five and had entered the UK in 2000 to work as a GRU agent. He is told that his emails and his phone are being monitored. It's quite a heavy meeting and he's even asked to take a lie detector test and told he had failed it.
0: And what does he make of that?
1: He continues to deny it. He says all of these allegations are implausible. And because of his security clearance... He returns to Kabul, but two months later, he is called into the embassy and told that his British citizenship is being stripped.
0: I see. So then he's left in Afghanistan, I guess, as he was right at the very beginning of the story, no longer with British citizenship.
1: That's true. However, we do think that at that point he may have had Russian citizenship. It was discussed in court that around about 2013, he may have gained it. Hmm. Uh, he says he gained it. There was a discussion on how. So it's possible that he was left in Afghanistan with with two forms of citizenship, Afghan and Russian.
0: In terms of the case that you heard in this tribunal as put forward by the government, what, what were they saying about him? What were they alleging?
1: Their case is straightforward, that his presence in the UK is risky and he is a threat to national security because he's a Russian agent. In submissions to the court, they say... The essential reasoning was that the security service assessed that the appellant was an agent of the Russian Military Intelligence Services, GRU, mm. and that, should he return to the UK, there was a real risk that he would undertake activity on behalf of the GRU, and that he therefore posed a risk to UK national security.
0: And yet, he does return to the UK.
1: He does. So roughly two years after he is stripped of his citizenship, Kabul falls to the Taliban. So this is 2021, is 2021. August 2021. 2021. And at that point, Britain mounts this extraordinary rescue effort, Operation Pitting. I think we evacuated around 15,000 people across two weeks.
0: There was that whole argument about the animals.
1: It was an extraordinary time. There's been plenty of discussion since of people left behind as well, Mm. people who we should have evacuated and we didn't manage. And in... Amongst those flights, C2 is able to board a British evacuation flight back to the UK. So
0: he manages to get on a British evacuation flight where many others can't, even though he has recently, in the last couple of years or so, had his British citizenship stripped from him.
1: That's correct. It is not known how. It is not known whether this was a decision made clearly and for good reason, or whether Hmm. this was an accident or whether it lies the truth lies somewhere in between those two. I see.
0: Once he lands on this evacuation flight from Kabul, as Kabul is is falling into the hands of the Taliban, what happens to him when he lands?
1: He is immediately arrested and taken to Belmarsh Prison, where he is held on national security grounds. He is held for a little while, and then those grounds, the reasons for his detention, are later changed to deception and unacceptable conduct. And he is released on bail. He remains in the UK.
0: So in this hearing, which is about he's brought this case to this court because he thinks his british citizenship was taken off him wrongly what has his barrister said in you know to, to form his case
1: well he denies that he was ever a russian agent his barrister has said on his behalf that he has a track record of loyalty to the uk he said he met the russian officers only after leaving government employment at which time he had no access to confidential secret or sensitive information of any sort and they also argue an interesting point, which is that initially the National Security Assessments, which is what forms the government opinion in a case like this, mm. said that he is, quote, is considered to be a GRU agent. But later, this has changed to past tense. So there's a question over how long they considered him to be an agent for and whether that's still current. Based on this, his barrister described this security assessment as over-egged.
0: Interesting. So if we started this story with you arriving into this courtroom thinking, oh, I wonder if there's going to be anything interesting here for me, and now we spool forward to you with smoke coming from your pencil, what was going through your mind?
1: It was pretty extraordinary as a day. The thing with a case like this is there are so many complexities that if you're hearing it for the first time cold, you don't know what will later turn out to be really important.
0: Because everyone else in the room has the benefit of all the bundles they have of a documents. Bundle. Yeah.
1: They have pages and pages and, and you have nothing. So I erred on the side of caution and tried to take down and understand absolutely every point, even the stuff that felt confusing and irrelevant, in case it turned out to be really, really important later, yeah. which was, was a, a, I think, the right decision.
0: You said shorthand wasn't useful.
1: It never dies out.
0: When will we expect some kind of verdict? In what form will that come? You it will know. be
1: in a written form, but we don't know.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Luke Jones and my guest, Times news reporter, Emma Yeomans. All the updates on this extraordinary story will be published in The Times, so you can read it all by picking up a paper copy or by reading online with a subscription. The producer today was Edward Drummond, the executive producer was Kate Ford, and sound design was by Mauro Seto. If you've got a suggestion for something we should be covering, an angle, maybe a topic that we've neglected, stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk is the best way to email. Goodbye.